Alliance, Michael Sinoff with Michael Sinoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. The title of this interview is called The Secret to Curing Alcoholism. Stop trying so hard. It's an interview with David Sinclair on his new breakthrough method. David Sinclair, Ph.D., stumbled onto his innovative research as a student in the late 1960s. He noticed that detoxed lab rats jumped at the chance to guzzle alcohol even though they'd been clean and sober for weeks. That research showed there was a definite craving for the drug that didn't go away with the standard treatment of rehabilitation and abstinence. It turns out those cravings are caused because drinking alcohol releases endorphins in the brain. Brain. So the cure could be simple. Develop a way to block endorphins and people would reduce their alcoholic intake on their own without consciously trying. That process is now a reality known as the Sinclair method. With the method, all you have to do is take a pill every time you drink. And before you know it, your drinking will be under control without any effort. No cravings. No stigmas, no hassles. And in this audio interview, you'll hear exactly how it all works from David Sinclair himself. You'll also hear the little-known pill called naltrexone, which makes it all work and how to use it and how to get a prescription. You'll learn the surprising details about a way addiction forms in the brain. You'll learn why you've probably never heard of this method before and how to learn more about it. You'll learn what types of alcoholism this treatment works for and who won't be able to use it. You'll learn one correct way to make this treatment work for you. You'll learn other breakthrough uses for naltrexone and the Sinclair method. David says that people who take naltrexone will usually end up drinking less than two drinks per day and may decide to quit altogether, but they have control over their addiction and are able to make the choice themselves. And with this amazing 75% success rate, this could be the best choice for many people worldwide. I hope you enjoy this interview. Now let's get going. Hi, this is Chris Costello, and I've teamed up with Michael Senoff to bring you the world's best wellness-related interviews. So if you know anyone struggling with their weight, with cancer, diabetes, ADHD, autism, heart disease, or other health challenges, please send them to michaelsenoffshardtofindseminars.com. So you have been researching the effects of alcohol addiction for many years now. And how did you get started with this? Well, as people probably can tell from the accent, I am an American originally. I've been in Finland since 1972, but I started in alcohol research long before that as an undergraduate at the University of Cincinnati. I was working with a professor, R.J. Center, and he had a grant to study alcohol. I was one of the students that he hired, and I was very lucky. I made a discovery that turned out to be very important in the field. At the time, people believed that alcohol drinking, we already knew it wasn't for the pleasure, but most people thought it was in order to avoid the withdrawal, that alcohol dependence was caused by physiological dependence. Hold on to that thought for a second. I wanted to do a study with rats that had been drinking alcohol there, and so Dr. Center said there were some leftover control rats from a previous study, and they'd had a choice between water and alcohol solution. Very happy rats, but they really didn't like the alcohol very much. They drank 70% from the water bottle and only 30% from the alcohol bottle, so it looked like it was 
water in booths would be 50-50. It looked like they were avoiding the alcohol. So I went down in the middle of the afternoon to the rats that hadn't had any alcohol for two weeks. Rats are nighttime creatures, so they do all their drinking when I'm not there. I'd never actually seen a rat drink alcohol. Not sure if anyone had. I put the first alcohol bottle back on the cage, and the rat sort of shook his head and came up the front and started drinking. I got to see my first rat drinking alcohol. And I put the second bottle on, and the rat was there and grabbed the bottle and pulled it inside the cage. Every single rat in the whole rack of cages started drinking immediately. And it was obviously very powerful motivation for alcohol. They didn't stop to drink the water at all. These were the same rats that two weeks earlier hadn't liked the alcohol. And, I mean, one of the questions of the whole field was, why bother studying rats because they don't like alcohol? Only people are crazy enough to drink. And here I was seeing the rats drinking. So what was causing it? We went back and did all kinds of control studies and found that there was one extremely powerful factor. We called it the alcohol deprivation effect. It's a little bit like with hunger, that if you want to see hunger, you have to take the food away for a while. And if you want to see hunger for alcohol, you have to take the alcohol away. This has been replicated over and over again, and it's found to be true for other things. For instance, they just found in NIDA that the same thing works for cocaine, morphine. But it's particularly powerful for addictive drugs. Now, there are two reasons why this is important. One is, Chris, what is the major treatment that people do for alcoholism in America today? Well, of course, for any addiction, they tell you not to do it. Yeah, they put you through detox. And then they'll put you in rehab where you're not able to get any of the stuff. So they dry you out. They deprive you of alcohol for three weeks or so. And if indeed the hunger for alcohol was caused by the physiological dependence, you're done with that pretty much. You go through withdrawal during the first day or two. But in fact, the people come out of the dependence still craving alcohol. It does not get rid of the craving. If anything, it makes it worse. It's like trying to cure the desire for food by starving a person for a couple of days. It doesn't work. <laughs> what are the traditional success rates for the abstinence-type programs? Roy quotes numbers all around 5 to 10%, and you also will get the same type of numbers just by talking to people. The detox itself does not get rid of the craving. And the other thing that this did, discovering the alcohol deprivation effect, was to give me an animal model. I had rats that would show motivation for it, and they would drink whenever I wanted them to. All I needed to do was to take the alcohol away. We could give them a happy hour. Once a day, they would have alcohol presented for them, and they would be waiting for me. Uh, you put them up on the weighing tray, and they could run away. They're not going to. They're happy rats. They jump back in the cage and sit there waiting for their alcohol to come. And then I could do things of testing medicines to see if they affected the alcohol drinking. So it was a beautiful animal model. Plus, it told me that we needed to look for another theory of what causes addiction to alcohol, that it is not physiological dependence, it's not the pleasure, it's something else. And how many years ago was this when you first noticed this? Uh, I think it was 1965. It became my master's thesis in 67, I know that. And then I came out to Oregon and continued doing alcohol research. I think probably the most important thing we found in Oregon was a link between
between alcohol drinking and morphine. The idea wasn't mine. In fact, I was completely against the idea. There had been a paper that was published, and it was suggesting that there's something from alcohol that is a bit like morphine or opiates. And other people came in and immediately said, ah, that's not true because the withdrawal symptoms are completely different. And if you're going through a morphine withdrawal, giving alcohol doesn't cure it. You don't have cross dependence. But I had just found that the dependence part was not the reason for drinking. I knew there was something else that was causing the motivation. So I was going to do a proper test to show that there was no similarity between the alcohol drinking that we do and the opium taking that they do. I mean, of course they're different. Everybody knows they are. And so I did one experiment in which I gave morphine to rats during the period when they were deprived of alcohol. And guess what? It blocked the alcohol deprivation effect. The morphine satisfied them. I did study after study, and in every one of them, it turned out that morphine was a substitution drug for alcohol. Finally, I gave up, and okay, and the idea was right. There is this link between the two, and published in Nature a little bit later. So I was doing all the work in alcohol, and that became my doctoral thesis in Oregon in 1972. After that, I came over to Finland. I should tell about the laboratory here in Finland. I had mentioned that I was one of the few people who'd seen motivation for alcohol in rats, and most people didn't think that rats liked alcohol. One exception was here in Finland where a doctor, Calero Eriksson, had bred a special line of rats, the AA line, that loved alcohol. This is a very strong genetic component. In fact, we didn't know it when I started into alcohol research, and now it is quite accepted that there is a strong genetic component to the risk of alcoholism and how much people will like alcohol. And this started out with the rats while in Chile and then here in Finland, and then went on to twin studies and showing it in humans. So Kali had the heavy drinking rats here. We had been exchanging reprints, and I really liked what they were doing in Finland. They were putting the story together. They're not just doing one little study, but trying to make sense of things. I might mention one reason for this. You know, alcohol research isn't taught as a field of study in the universities. So you cannot major in alcohol research. Most researchers at that time in America who wanted to do something on alcohol were coming from some other field, knew nothing about alcohol. They'd do a grant, spend two years learning about alcohol, one year doing the research, and then not get the grant the next year. You need to be dedicated working on it year after year after year. So in Finland, there was this laboratory Alco's laboratory, that was a full-time thing. All it did was alcohol research, and it became a career. And then you could have the background and the time in the area to try to put things together. So on April 28, 1972, at 6 a.m. in the morning, I handed in my dissertation, caught an airplane from Portland, Oregon, and arrived in Finland in time for the national drinking holiday of Vapu. <laughs> Good introduction to drinking. <laughs> this is Chris Costello interviewing for Michael Senoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. How do the rates of alcoholism compare to the U.S.? To- well, actually, the numbers at that time, America was drinking much more. The total amount of alcohol that was consumed, now Finland is higher, but it was more obvious here because of the style of drinking. Remember, 
remember the alcohol deprivation effect I was talking about? Well, in Finland, people don't drink on Sunday or Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday, and at that time on Friday. But when Saturday night came around, they drank the entire week's worth, wow. and so you saw a lot of public intoxication. It different than what you see in France, for instance, the Mediterranean style. I don't know whether you can say one is better than the other. There are disadvantages to both and special problems with both. I think that Roy's title for his book is The Cure for Alcoholism. And people do question the word cure, but I think that can be backed up. I might make it a little bit softer. I think I would say the cure for one type of alcoholism or for the main type of alcoholism. Because what we found when we first started a clinic here in Finland, and we found that the treatment we were using was effective in 78% of the patients. They were doing quite well, most of them beautifully, and it was fantastic to see them. But there were 10% who didn't comply. They didn't take the medicine, so we don't know. But there were 12% who were taking the medicine and following the instructions, and it wasn't working for them. Hmm. So there is another type of alcoholism that we still don't know how to treat. The main thing we know is the one we can treat is opiatergic. It is being affected by the same system in the brain as morphine, and so that's how we can treat it. The other one, people are calling it the dark side of alcoholism. Probably it is similar to barbiturates and benzodiazepines, but we're still speculating. A different area of the brain is being affected? Or? Different chemicals in the brain. Alcohol is a very messy medicine. <laughs> uh -huh. It affects all kinds of things. And one of the things it does is to release endorphins. You know, these are the chemicals that your brain releases that are like opiates, like morphine. And that is one way to becoming addicted to alcohol through these endorphins from the reinforcement from the endorphins. I'll go back to that in a little bit. But there are other people who are affected by other things that alcohol does. When you're falling down and a lack of motor coordination, that is caused not by the endorphins, but by the effect of alcohol on, it's called GABA. These are little tiny neurons all over the brain and the most common neuron you have. And alcohol disturbs them and you lose your balance. And this is the same way that barbiturates and benzodiazepines work. So this is probably the other way of becoming addicted, but there we don't know. But let me go back to the thing that we do know. I mentioned a long time ago that in Oregon, we had found there was this link between the opiate system and alcohol. The other key is that alcohol drinking is learned. No one is born an alcoholic. You may be born with genetics, like our AA rats, that make you have a higher risk. But if you never drink alcohol, you're never going to become an alcoholic. That's sure. Somehow, in the process of drinking, your brain changes. So you end up being wired. So it's almost a reflex to think about alcohol all the time and end up drinking it. It's important to know what your own family history is and to consider it in what you're telling your kids and for the kids to consider it in what their behavior is. This is an entire other field of alcohol education, and there is also the possibility of preventing alcohol with the same medicine. Let's consider a little bit more what exactly is happening. When a person drinks alcohol, the alcohol is absorbed and it comes up into the brain, and one of the things it does is
don't know most. And the pathways in the brain that had just been used, the neurons that made you think about alcohol, made you lift the glass, made you go to the pub, all these ones that just were used become a little bit stronger and easier to use tomorrow. So tomorrow you're walking by the pub and you're more likely to think about alcohol, more likely to go in, more likely to order another drink and endorphins again are flowing down and making the pathway still stronger. It's a learning process. It's very slow. Alcohol is not a good reinforcer, but over 10 years or something like that, in some people, these pathways become so strong they can't be controlled. It's almost like a knee-jerk reflex. If someone taps you on the knee and your foot lifts up, you don't have much choice about it. Maybe you can withhold it for a little bit, but pretty soon your foot's going to go up. And it becomes the same way for an alcoholic. Now, again, there's this genetic factor. Some people can do the drinking and then forget about it soon afterwards. But some people get a lot more endorphins released when they drink, are much more susceptible. And eventually, when they get too much reinforcement too many times, these pathways are so strong, they can't control them. But after the thing has been learned very, very well, there is no choice anymore. Now, this is a very important thing for people to accept that there are some behaviors that they cannot control. There's the statement that you hear over and over again, just say no. Okay, to a teenager, that's the thing that is possible. But to an alcoholic, it's a meaningless statement. Consider holding your breath. Now, you have a little bit of control over it to begin with. If I told you, Chris, to hold your breath, you could do it for 20 seconds here. At 30 seconds, I say, I give you $10, Chris, if you hold another 10 seconds. And you might make it up so far. And there comes a point when it doesn't matter how much I offer you, whether the gun is pointed at your head, you can't do it anymore. You cannot control it. That is the key issue with alcohol drinking and alcoholism. An alcoholic is someone who cannot control the alcohol drinking in some situations, that the behavior has become so reflexive that they don't have control. What do people do about this? Well, what we had concluded was that alcoholism is simply a behavior that had been learned so well that you couldn't control it anymore in some circumstances. Now, if you ask any psychologist, you have a learned behavior and you want to weaken it, what can you do? And Pavlov, many, many years ago, would have said you extinguish it. Most people have heard of Pavlov's dogs that learned to salivate when he rang the bell and then gave some food, and pretty soon the bell alone would make them salivate. And then he discovered that that was the process of learning, but there's something the opposite of learning that takes away the learned behavior. If he rang the bell and the dog salivated, but he didn't give the food reinforcement, then the behavior got weaker, and eventually the dogs no longer were salivating much at all to the bell. There's been tens of thousands of experiments on extinction, and it turns out to be a basic mechanism in the brain. It's sort of the brain's way of erasing mistakes. You've learned something that gives you something you need, food or water or whatever, and if it no longer does it, your brain needs to have a way to erase that behavior so you don't continue doing the wrong thing. So theoretically, if a person were to drink alcohol but not receive the endorphin reinforcement from it, then the brain should weaken these reflexes, should break down the pathways gradually, and 
eventually you'd have control over it again. Well, it was a good idea. You need to have somehow to block the effect of the endorphins. And back at the time when we were thinking this, they just discovered chemicals like naltrexone that block the effect of opiates. If you have a heroin addict and you give them naltrexone, if they take heroin, they don't feel anything, no effect at all. The naltrexone fits into the receptors where heroin or morphine goes and blocks it, like having the wrong key in a lock. Imagine that morphine or endorphine is a key, and it normally fits into a lock and causes effects. But naltrexone is the wrong key. It's sitting in that lock, and as long as it's in there, the morphine or the endorphine just bounce off and don't do anything. So we tried this in rats. We gave them naltrexone and then some alcohol to drink. And indeed, what we found was that to begin with, first day, there's no effect at all. They come up running, happy to drink after the naltrexone. They start drinking it, and it looks normal. But the next day, they're not so fast at running up to get it. And by the third day, they're very slow of bothering with it. By the fifth day, most of the rats didn't care at all about it. They weren't thinking about alcohol anymore. It looked exactly like extinction. In science, you don't prove anything. You just eliminate everything else. So the next two years were experiments to eliminate every other conclusion, and we ended up deciding that you could remove the overly strong desire for alcohol by extinction with naltrexone. Okay, all of the pieces for understanding we should be able to use naltrexone really were present within two years after the time I got to Finland. I mean, if anybody had bothered sitting down and thinking about it for a minute, we would have seen it then. In fact, we got sidetracked and 10 years went here and five years went there. In the meantime, I wrote a book called The Rest Principle, A Neurophysiological Theory of Behavior. And in this, it is explaining how learning occurs in neurons and how extinction occurs in neurons. And when I'd written the book and could see how learning is happening, not by some little person choosing to do something, some homunculus, but rather by neurons changing their synapses, the strength, by the wiring of the brain changing, then it was obvious that all you need to do is use naltrexone or similar type of medicines, nalmefen or naloxone, and that you should be able to extinguish it. However, who cares whether rats drink or not? The important thing is, does it work on humans? There were other people who tried it on monkeys later, and it did work on them. But the critical thing was, would it work in human beings? So we needed to have clinical trials done. Went over to the hospital, just in back of me here now, and asked them if they would do it, and they thought it was a good idea. Let me just jump ahead here. We had the ideas for doing it, but we didn't get the money in order to do it. I won't cry over the lack of money. We did get the support eventually, and we did our clinical trial. But the first clinical trials were done in America, and the first one was by Chuck O'Brien's group at the University of Pennsylvania, and almost at the same time, Stephanie O'Malley's group at Yale did the studies. I heard a preliminary announcement at a conference in 89. It was a short publication in 90, but the main papers came out in 92. Things move slowly, three times as slow as they should if you really want to help people. But they got very good results. Moreover, it happened that they noticed some things that in the Chuck O'Brien study that the main effects were in those patients who actually drank alcohol while they were on the naltrexone. 
that's exactly what you need for extinction. That has been the main problem ever since and still is what Roy's book is trying to illustrate the main thing that I have been doing. Our own clinical trial here in Finland had compared two different methods of using naltrexone. One idea for how naltrexone should work, I should preface this is the wrong idea, is that it's sort of like a diet pill that you take the medicine and it immediately takes away your desire for alcohol and you can use it in order to remain sober and abstinent. So if it worked like this, the doctor says, you go through detox and rehabilitation. The doctor says, don't drink anything and here's your naltrexone pill, take it all the time, but particularly if you're having any craving to block the craving. If it worked that way, then you should find that people getting the naltrexone pill are slower to relapse to taking the first drink than people on the placebo, but they're not. In fact, there's been 39 trials, just had another one reported here in Helsinki two weeks ago, and none of them have found that the naltrexone slows up your starting to drink alcohol again. It doesn't work like a diet pill. You have to use the naltrexone at the same time as drinking because that changes the brain. First, let me describe the way that we've been doing it here in Finland, which Roy's calling the Sinclair method. You start with patients who are drinking. They haven't gone through detoxification, haven't gone through rehab. They were drinking yesterday. And you tell them, if you're going to drink tomorrow, take a naltrexone pill an hour before you start drinking. And you don't try to force them to drink. You tell them don't drink and drive and don't drink more, but just drink what you want to. And what we find is in the very beginning, during the first couple of days, is hardly any change at all. They're drinking about the same amount. We're asking them what their craving is, and it's about the same. But then gradually, week after week, month after month, both the craving and the drinking go down. And they go down further and further and further until the people start to be able to control it and then start to be able to have days off. With the 78% that are successful, we get, on the average, a 75% reduction in alcohol drinking. So they're going down, on the average, to less than two drinks a day, about nine drinks a week. Many of them have quit completely. We ask them what their goals are in the beginning. And most of them did not want abstinent. About 2% said they wanted to become abstinent. Most wanted to be like everybody else when drinks are being served, that they can take one drink along with it. And that's the way that they end up. Now, let me just caution. This works social drinking for alcoholics if they're on naltrexone. Our clinical trial that we did here in Finland, when we had placebo and controlled drinking, it was an utter failure. If you're not on naltrexone, don't try social drinking. It just does not work. But with naltrexone, it is possible. In fact, it is the way to go. For more interviews on health, mind, body, and spirit, go to michaelsenoffshardtofindseminars.com. Is this basically just a normal treatment in Finland? It is becoming the standard treatment. It wasn't an obvious one here either. We found that the first clinic that started doing it was doing the abstinence way. It's sort of the intuitive thing to give it during abstinence. People have been using abuse that way. And also what the doctors want to do is say don't drink. So it's difficult for 
for them to change their way of giving. And so we started our own clinic here, Contrail Clinics, that were doing it the right way so that extinction could occur. And then it spread around Finland and through many other countries. Okay, it still is not as popular as I would like. It was not given to everybody. But in America, it's something like 2%. In Hazleton, only 4% of the alcoholics have ever been given naltrexone. It's really a shame because it does work, but it's not being used. The message hasn't gotten to doctors. Scientifically, there have been 79 clinical trials now showing that naltrexone and nalmefen work if you allow the extinction to occur. I mean, it is one of the most solidly confirmed conclusions you can have. In the conference we just finished having two weeks ago, the major conclusion was naltrexone is a success story scientifically. It definitely works, but the rest of the world couldn't care less. The largest clinical trial ever conducted in alcohol research project combined was completed a few years ago. And one of the findings that they made was that naltrexone worked without intensive counseling. When it was originally approved by the FDA, 1995, it was approved for use within comprehensive programs like Betty Ford or Hazleton. And so regular doctors didn't feel up to using it. That wasn't the way it was supposed to be used. But they found now that it worked with just medical maintenance. And therefore, it can be used by just a general caregiver, a general practitioner could give naltrexone and it should be working. So you didn't include counseling in your research with your rats? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that was exactly what I said at the meeting in Chicago when they announced this. They were pointing out that you didn't need all the counseling, and I said, I'm not surprised about that. That's never listened to anything I said to them. Maybe I didn't speak Finnish properly. <laughs> but Willingbring has been saying that he expects to have a Prozac moment in the near future for naltrexone when general practitioners start prescribing naltrexone for functional alcoholics, the ones who can walk into his office. Maybe then the usage will start going up. But there's also the question, you should know what you're doing with it. I think this is one reason to read Roy's book, because we have a lot of experience that Roy has used for putting up this book, and also the alcoholics are helped with this. There's a whole chapter in there for doctors to read on how to use the naltrexone for the patients that are coming into them. I think that there is a possibility, a very strong possibility, that we'll see a major change in the usage in the near future. Also, the people who are the experts are beginning to see the light, to understand. One of the main German researchers was here, and he came up to me and said, you know, it's all becoming clear now that you have to use it with the extinction. You've got to use it in the right way. The things that had been puzzling are now beginning to make sense. There are people who say that put together the results from the studies to use it the wrong way and the right way, and when you average them out, you don't get much of anything. So you have to split the studies up into the ones that use it with extinction and those that didn't if you want to evaluate them properly. Okay, let me go back just a second to the point that only 4% are using it. This suggests that the real problem has been in the promotion, and maybe there has been complaints that I've been pushing too hard. I mean, I see something that I help put 
together and it should be used and I want to go around and tell people the right way to do it. So after one study did it the wrong way, I flew over to NIAAA and gave a lecture there and flew up to Yale and gave a lecture there. I knew the right way to use it. I knew the results we were getting in Finland. And if you use it the right way, it's not perfect, but it's better than anything else we have right now. The treatment that we're doing doesn't require any detoxification or any rehab. Here in Finland and in America, we have invested fortunes into building these rehab hospitals and detoxification centers and training all the people. A lot of investment in this. Many countries don't have this. For instance, most of the developing world does not have an infrastructure for treating alcoholism, but they still have a problem. This treatment with naltrexone provides the way that they can start treating without putting in all that investment. Roy went to northern India along with a nonprofit organization, CORD, and taught them how to use naltrexone the way that we've been using it in Finland. And they didn't have to build a hospital first or build a resort for people to stay in. They could just start taking a pill before drinking and with some counseling as far as how to improve your life and what to do with your time now. The results that they got were almost exactly the same that we got in Finland. They had a 75% success rate. I think this is important. It's a little bit like the story here in Finland about cell phones. Finland is the home of Nokia for people who don't know and think it's Japanese and where Finns are very proud of Nokia. They say that Cell phones were very nice in the developing world, but sort of in competition to begin with with the landlines. Where they really are great is in places like Africa, where they hadn't put down the investment already in the copper wires between cities. It allowed leapfrogging technology so that people were able to jump up to the level of technology of the rest of the world with the use of cell phones. And naltrexone provides the same thing. They can, in places like India and many other parts of the world, you can start treating alcoholism without having all this investment. I think it's also important with endogenous people. My niece was working in Australia, and there is a horrible problem among the endogenous people with alcoholism. And very little they can do. They've instituted prohibition again. Well, they could get them naltrexone. One of our workers here is at the World Health Organization's headquarters in Geneva, giving out a copy of Roy's book, <laughs> particularly to the Australian representative. I hope that we can get some type of an international program going in which we would try to train the people in other countries, developing countries, how to use naltrexone. It is just economically, it is so much cheaper only scratching the surface. I mean, that Roy has done it in one little spot in northern India, and there's an entire world out there that needs help. This is the type of thing for the World Health Organization to come in on, and maybe some philanthropic organizations that particularly want to help endogenous people or developing countries. This would be an excellent project for them to be working on. Just mentioning the economics in America. I understand you're having a little bit of a debate in America about the cost of health care. When you look at alcoholism treatment, the main thing that insurance companies pay for is detoxification. And that we already showed in 1965 doesn't work. If you wanted to have a much cheaper and more effective system, you can eliminate all these steps that are expensive, they're also dangerous. Detox 
risk of addiction to other medicines, rethink the health system, particularly in the case of alcohol, and put it together again in a rational, less expensive way that helps more people. My mother and father lived in Florida, and my father was sick, turned out terminally ill. Had gone to the hospital. When he found out it was serious, I flew over to see him. I might mention my father was a salesman, and when I got there, his surgeon came up to me, and he said, I have bad news. Your father's going to need another operation. But about this alcoholism treatment your father has been telling us all about, and my father had managed to sell the naltrexone treatment to all of the nurses and all of the doctors who were within earshot of him. So the surgeon had a friend who was a psychiatrist and said, could you come out with us and have lunch and tell us about this? And then the psychiatrist wanted me to see his manager, and she said she wanted to start a center, just like you said. And so this was sort of my father's memorial. Uh, he didn't make it through the second operation, but he was one heck of a salesman. <laughs> but we started the clinic there, and they're still operating, but they haven't found out how to make a fortune out of it, and therefore to spread all over the place. One point that I should mention on this, and this is probably the hottest topic right now in the naltrexone field. In the same area in southern Florida, there was a researcher, Mike Mullins, at the Ruskamp Institute, who had discovered a particular genetic mutation that changed the receptor where endorphins go into, made them work a little bit better. And he found that people with this mutation were more likely to be alcoholics. It happened to be this change in the opiate system. So it occurred to me that these would be people that you could treat particularly well with the naltrexone. So went down there and had a meeting with Mike Mullins' group, and it was all set up, but trying to get the international finances going, and we never got the research going. A great idea. Ten years later, it was found that this mutation makes a tremendous difference in how successful naltrexone is. The project combined that I mentioned, the patients who had this mutation, the C carriers of the 1188A, among them, naltrexone was effective in 87.1% of the patients. I mean, that's phenomenal in the alcoholism field, an 87, almost 90% success rate in a double-blind placebo-controlled study. The thing that many people are talking about now is looking for this marker, and if you can find the patients in which it's probably 90% effective, it's immoral for a doctor not to be giving naltrexone to them because it works so well. It's a rather simple test. I'm not sure whether it is available regularly. It is here in our laboratory. We're setting it up, and we hope to have it even simpler ways of doing it in the future. But this is not expensive to do. It's relatively quick, and you could look to treat the patients with naltrexone where you're almost certain to be successful. This should be a way of helping the reputation of the treatment. Now, I have to mention, this was in the patients who didn't get the counseling. The same thing did not show up in the group that got a lot of counseling about not drinking and abstaining. So if you're going to insist upon using the abstinence way of don't drink and here's your pill, then it's not going to help having the marker. You have to use it so that they drink at the same time they're on the naltrexone. And then the marker should give you 
very good results. I just don't understand why this wouldn't be phenomenally successful if you were a doctor and you wanted to treat people with this. I get the same question everywhere. The publisher asked the same question of Roy and insisted he put a chapter in there. Well, let's go back to Stephanie O'Malley's study. She had two different ways of doing it. One of them was coping, in which essentially they were allowed to drink, and it worked beautifully. Mm -hmm. And she had the second group, in which it was with abstinence, and it didn't work. Mm -hmm. But she tried it and got beautiful results. As I say, there's 77 or 79 clinical trials showing it does work. So people have mm -hmm. done it, but the PR is certainly the problem. What you have to overcome with the PR is this idea that it works as a diet pill. Even some right. of the ones who did the basic animal studies thought it was working that way. It's such a strong feeling that you can take a medicine and it changes the way that you feel, that they sort of accept that automatically. I just finished a review that's going to be coming out this fall in which I go through all of the research in the lab with rats and in the clinics and in the clinical trials and not a single bit of evidence showing anything of a diet pill effect. There are cases in which people have gotten doctors, but there are many people writing in from England and America yeah. talking about how they can't get a doctor to give it to. One thing I am hoping for here, have you heard about the campaign to make naloxone over the counter? No. Okay, naloxone it works the same way in the brain as naltrexone, but you use only a little tiny dose, and they are giving it out to friends of opiate addicts. In Chicago, there's a group that has given out 11,000 kits of a syringe with one dose of naloxone in it. Hmm. And if they see a friend who is going into an overdose, hmm. then they stab them with this in the hip, and they've had over a 1,000 reversed overdoses. And it would be even nicer if this stuff were available without a prescription than medicine, naloxone, and naltrexone too, but naloxone is even safer. And it's so safe that it doesn't have to be a doctor choosing when to give it. It can be an addict or a friend of an addict choosing when to give it. And it's saving lives. And so it'd be nice if it were available in drugstores. And if you can start getting the antagonist available over the counter, then you're going to see lots of people start using it. And you don't need to overcome biases. They can read the book and find out how to use it. Doctors would have used anything they could before, but this does give a new possibility, and I would like to see it change in this direction. If you'd like to know more about what Dr. Sinclair is doing, you can email him, or if you have questions for him, you can email him at david.sinclair, that's S-I-N-C-L-A-I-R, at T-H-L dot F-I. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on the show. That's the end of our interview, and I hope you've enjoyed it. For more great health-related interviews, go to Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com. That's the end of our interview with David Sinclair. I hope you found this helpful. And for more great interviews on health and wellness, go to hardtofindseminars.com.